Hey, this is Stephen, and I want to welcome you or welcome you back to the Grove Church Podcast. For more information or to find more resources like this one, be sure to visit us at grove.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope the following message is encouraging and meaningful to your life. Good morning. As Michael said, we're so excited that you are here and devoting some of this frigid Valentine's Day with us to worship here. My name is Ali Shulman, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so excited to share this final installment of the sermon series that we've been calling Essentialism. Essentialism came from this question that started to percolate in 2020, this idea of how do we stay focused on what matters? You see, in 2020, even amidst all the chaos, there were moments of clarity, moments of realizing what mattered and what didn't. But as we progressed into 2021, it became clear that as more things came back into our life, we wouldn't be able to keep that clarity unless we really stayed focused, unless we brought some intentionality to it. And our proposition here at The Grove was that there was a set of practices, ancient practices, that were designed to do just that, to keep us focused, to bring clarity to our lives, And they do that by connecting us to a part of ourselves that we call our spirituality or our soul. And from that part, you're able to gain clarity, to become more resilient, to learn what matters and what doesn't. You're able to brush aside external circumstances and stay focused on that inner peace. And we didn't make up these practices, obviously. They're ancient, like I said. They've actually existed for centuries. Almost since Christianity became a religion, people have been exploring these practices together. In fact, there is a famous theologian named St. Augustine who you've probably heard of, and he talked about these exercises or these practices a lot. And he said that the purpose of such practices, the purposes of such disciplines, was to rightly order our loves. Let me explain. He said in a quote that living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things, to love things, that is, in the right order. You see, Augustine's idea was that we have all of these choices out in the world, all these things that we can love, but the Christian life, the Christian life loves things in a certain order. And that order is this, that you love God and that you love others and that you love yourself. You probably have heard of that order. Maybe you heard it at a summer camp when you were young or maybe in a Sunday school class. Love God, love others, love self. And Augustine's proposal is that we get it wrong when we switch some of those loves. In order to live a Christian life, in order to be connected to God, they have to be in the right order. And certainly the practices that we have talked about over the last five weeks really help to keep that first love in place. They help us stay in a place where the love of God is first and foremost in our life. But we can get into trouble if we just leave it there. Because for us, in our world, in our culture, in our society, almost always we're going to switch those bottom two. 
even when we do these practices that maintain God at the forefront of our life, like fasting and simplicity and silence and solitude and gratitude and generosity, even when we keep God at the forefront, we often choose love of self over love of others. And this is natural for us almost. It, it happens from birth. It's actually evolution, right? This idea that when you put yourself first, you're more likely to survive. And if you have kids or been around young children, you know this. You don't have to teach kids how to be self-interested, how to care about themselves. No, that comes naturally from birth. But empathy, empathy, compassion, looking at other people and being able to see their perspective, knowing how to love people well, that's something you have to develop in children. That's something that you have to work on. That's something that doesn't develop for most kids until age six. Six! We spend six years on this earth convinced that love of self should always be above love of others. See, our brain development is really hardwired on self-interest, but we're still catching up on the empathy piece. And we took that biological bent toward self-interest and we applied it to structures of our culture. We have whole institutions, whole ways of being that focus on the idea and that are based upon the idea that humans at their core are self-interested. You can see it all around you. If you go to school, if you participate in an election, you can see it on your org chart at work or the pay structure. It's what our economic system is based on. Love of self and self-interest is imbued in our culture. But what I find interesting about this and perhaps a little disturbing is that even though that, that is the groundwork of our culture, it seems that in the last 40 years or so, that bent that biological bent toward self-interest has been amplified, has been intensified by the way that we orchestrate our lives, by the way that we use technology, by the way that we have learned to be with each other that prioritizes the individual over the collective. Now, there's a few ways that I think this shows up, and some of them are silly, but you're going to bear with me because I think sometimes we can look at little trends in pop culture and they show us a little bit of where we've shifted as a culture. So the first one I want us to think about, like where has the individual shown up most in our lives? I want you to think about how we used to listen to music. Even when I was young, you listened to music by listening to the radio and you had to wait through a bunch of songs that you didn't really love just to get to the one that you were so excited about listening to. Do you remember that? Do you remember listening to these top 20 and just sitting there and listening to all these songs that you weren't really fans of to get to the one that you really loved? But now, now, do you listen to music like that? So many of us don't listen to radio for music. We prefer Spotify or Apple. We have ways of customizing our music experience. We put in our preferences into our phone, and then an algorithm sends those preferences and then picks up more music like the ones that we just listened to. And before you know it, you're listening to your own taste, to your own ideas of what is good music over and over and over again. And we don't just do this with music, we do this with news too, right? News apps, you can set your preferences. You can choose your source and then before you know it, you're listening to the same stuff 
the same opinions over and over and over again. But instead of getting bored, often what it does to us is it makes us feel like our own ideas are awesome, that we're right. It distances us us from others, that we look at their opinions and their choices and think, what are they thinking? I can't even relate to them anymore. And it's not just through these customizable experiences that we see the individual slowly beginning to take preference over the collective. But I think it's also in this idea of technology in terms of that we even have a thing called a profile. We literally have things called profiles. And not just like on Facebook or Instagram, but also in work context. Some of you at your jobs and at your companies have profiles that you maintain for your company. And on them, it's not just your image and your picture, but it's all these details that you have to craft, things that you have to write, bios that you have to edit to make sure that it reflects the best version of you. And in that process of crafting these profiles, in that process of crafting our image, suddenly most of us become hyper-aware of our own individual brand. We're slowly training our brain to focus not on others, but on ourselves. We're slowly training ourselves to be focused on how we appear to the world. And lastly, I think we can notice this trend of individual over the collective by who we celebrate. I think it's so interesting who we celebrate in our culture. And it's not always the people that we'd be proud to say that we love. You're going to have to bear with me on this example, but I promise it's worth it. So the first thing I think about when I think about who we celebrate and how we celebrate them I am deep in the midst, as I'm sure some of you are too, in The Bachelor. And yes, I watched The Bachelor. And if you know anything about The Bachelor, you know that they edit it every season for a villain. They make a villain. They edit that person so they become and look like a villain. And everyone hates this villain, and everyone talks about how much they hate this villain. And when he or she leaves the show, it's always this big uproar. Well, this season, there was a particular villain that was awful, one of the worst I've seen on television. She was saying horrible things to all these other women, and blah, 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 blah. She got kicked off the show, and you know what happened when she did? She gained 50,000 Instagram followers the night she got kicked off. 50,000 Instagram followers. And that might not seem like a lot to you, but let me explain. That following leads to contracts, leads to sponsorships, leads to a career. You see, some part of us really likes those who pursue with selfish ambition, those who pursue without a regard for others. And if that example didn't land, then, then what, about, what about sports? What about Michael Jordan? You watched The Last Dance. You watched that documentary that went through these stories. And it was complicated. Maybe for some of us, you, you started out watching it, wanting to admire Jordan but you heard all these stories and it complicated it a bit. But by the time you got to the end, I guarantee that most of us still celebrate him, still recognize that that bent towards self-interest, that bent towards ambition, it mattered and we glorified it. You see, in our world, love of self is glorified and that makes it really hard for us Christians who are trying to switch those last two orders, 
so that we have a correctly, rightly ordered love. So if we want to switch those, we have to look for practices, practices that help us prioritize love of others over love of self. And luckily, I think this dynamic is present in Scripture. But before we get to Scripture, I want to say a word about it. We're going to read from the Gospels today, and as you know, the Gospels are the accounts of Jesus' life. And they all vary a little bit, but they're actually remarkably similar. There's a lot of the similar stories told in all four. But occasionally, there comes one gospel that has one story or a couple stories that are different from the others. And so often what scholars do is they'll combine all of these stories to create a timeline of the narrative of Jesus' life. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to pull from two different gospels that talk about the same time period and link them together to create that timeline. But first, we're going to start in Luke. So in Luke, there is a place in Luke in chapter 22 where they are eating the Last Supper. So it's the last meal that they're going to have together. Jesus has already told the disciples that he is about to die. And Luke slips in this phrase. He says, And an argument broke out among them about who was going to be the greatest. Embarrassingly, this is the second argument about who is the greatest that comes in Luke. So we can tell that it's not just a fluke. It's not just an add-in that Luke forgot to take out. No, the disciples really cared about who was the greatest. They argued about it, disputed about it. They bickered about who was the greatest. And it's an odd question. For such a communally focused world, it's a really egocentric question. They felt insecure. They needed to know what the pecking order was. They needed to know who got the gold star, who got the authority when Jesus left. They were focused on this love of self. They needed Jesus to validate that love of self. But Jesus does something entirely different. And this is where we'll jump to John. So the same dinner, Jesus does something really extraordinary in response to this question. And we'll pick up in John 13. So Jesus got up from the table and he took off his robes. Picking up a linen towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a wash basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he was wearing. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you will understand later. No, Peter said, you will never wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't have a place with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. After he washed the disciples' feet, he put on his robes and returned to his place at the table. He said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you speak correctly because I am. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you too must wash each other's feet. I've given you an example. Just as I have done, you must do. I assure you, servants aren't greater than their master, nor are those who are sent greater than the one who sent them. You see, Jesus does an extraordinary thing. He reorders the disciples' love. He shows them 
where their priority should be. And it's from Jesus's action that I think there's a discipline, a practice that we can pick up for ourselves. And it isn't washing feet, although that is the outward expression of what he is doing. No, it's something deeper. You see, I think what Jesus demonstrates in the washing of the feet is the discipline of service. Now, service is a really complicated and kind of hard to define thing for most people. It's mostly observed and watched, and you see it over an extended period of time, and that's how you know what service is. It's watching your mother care for your father at the end of his life. It's watching your coworker stay after and tutor a kid who she knows will go home and be alone and unsafe. It's watching that car in front of you when you drive to work every so often pull over and give the man on the corner hot coffee. It's something we observe and recognize, but it's sometimes tricky to define. So we're going to look at what Jesus did and his actions in order to better define for ourselves what true service can look like in our lives. So first, what I think Jesus shows us is that service often requires us to give more than we feel comfortable, give more than what feels natural. Surely, Jesus' act is not natural. It's not at all. It's not at all for a lot of reasons. One, he's God, and they're humans. But second, it's also unnatural culturally. You might wash your own feet, but if someone else washed your feet, it was always, always a slave or a servant. It was an odd thing to do to pick up a towel and a basin and wash your friend's feet. It was unnatural. It required more of him than the disciples expected. You see, true service requires a complete release of all attachment to your freedom, to your time, to your resources, to your money. And often that release can feel uncomfortable for us. You see, we're often used to thinking of service in this narrow way of something you sign up for, something that you fill out a volunteer sheet for, and certainly that is encouraged, and there are things that you can gain from that, but that is not what Jesus is doing. Because when you sign up for things, you're still in charge of how it looks and what you do and when you do it. But true service requires a complete abandonment of any attachment or worry that you have about yourself. And that leads us to the second thing that I notice about Jesus' action. You see, true service is unexpected. It doesn't always hit you at the right time. It kind of hits you in the middle of your day, and that's what happens with Jesus. You see, he sees the disciples, and he sees a need, and he sees that he can meet that need, and he acts. That is the basis of service. You look at the opportunities around you. You know what you can serve, even if it's menial, even if it feels beneath you, and you do it. But this is way harder than I'm making it sound because service is really inconvenient. Service hits you in the middle of the day when you have to decide if you want to drop that workout class that you're really looking forward to or take your neighbor to the grocery store, if you want to watch your friend's baby when you had planned this really fun night out, 
If you want to read one more bedtime story, even though you've been dying for that moment of silence. Service is really inconvenient. And you have to look for it. You have to look for the opportunities that exist to meet them. And that brings us to our last, last thing that I see in Jesus as to what defines true service. Often in the Christian life, we talk about things in terms of evaluating them by the fruit they generate. That's the phrase we use. So often when you look at actions, they can look at the exact same. And so you're used to labeling them as good or bad, but really to judge whether something is good or bad, whether something is life-giving or life-taking, you have to look at the fruit. What does it produce? What do you gain from it? And service. Service has a very particular fruit, and it is the fruit that we hunger for. It is the fruit that we know we need in our life and that is so hard to figure out how to incorporate into our life, how to build you see, service generates in us the ability to put love of others over love of self. And that only comes from humility. Service, true service, always generates humility. And I say that because sometimes we do a lot of things that can look like service on the outside. They completely look like service on the outside. In fact, it's the same action that you would do if you were truly serving. But how you know that it's true service is by its effect, by what it leads to in you. Because true service does not breed resentment, and it does not breed self-righteousness. So often, we enter into service, and by the time we're a little bit of the ways through and it's taking way longer than we thought it would and we're kind of annoyed that we have to do this in the first place, by the time we get done with it, there's bitterness in our heart. We're resentful of the people that we're serving or the person who made us serve. You can see this pop up in all sorts of ways from the parents that you have to take care of at the end of life even though you didn't have a good relationship or your children who never say thank you it can breed resentment and bitterness so easily if we're not careful. It can also breed self-righteousness, thinking highly of yourself. And sometimes this shows up not just of thinking highly of yourself, but also judging others. Sometimes when we engage in these acts of service, we leave it feeling confident, feeling like we did something really good. But in the end, what true service does to us is it makes us recognize our own vulnerabilities by seeing the vulnerabilities of other. It humbles us. And the good news is, is that the more we do this, the more the change comes easier to us. The more that we serve, the more that we can enter into service with dread and hesitation, because let's be honest, we often enter into service with dread and hesitation. But the more that we do it, that dread and hesitation turns quicker into humility, into that fruit that we seek. There are lots of ways to serve. And Richard Foster, who's kind of the godfather of spiritual disciplines in the modern age, has this beautiful list of small acts of service that I think can be so important for us. So as I wrap up here, I'm going to talk about these different ways to serve, these small ways to serve. And as I go through that list, I want you to be thinking about what that looks like in your life, what that could look like in your life this week 
when we're most likely bundled up in our homes, trapped in our homes, what does service look like? So let's start with this list. First, there's the service of hiddenness, the service of being anonymous, the service of doing things and not taking credit. It's so tempting to give in to that self-righteousness when we do service in front of others. And while it's nearly impossible to do everything hidden, is it possible for you to maybe someday take some of those actions, some of those service choices, and be anonymous for a second? Second, the service of small things, those ordinary things like picking up groceries or dry cleaning, like icing someone's sidewalk this week. No, don't ice it. That would be bad. Salt it. That's what you need to do. Salting someone's, someone's sidewalk this week. There are small things in our life, and those menial things, those ordinary things, those are often the opportunity to serve. Too often we don't want to be vulnerable. We we're scared that that other person won't want to be vulnerable with us. But every time a friend or a neighbor or even a stranger comes forward with a really ordinary thing, it's an opportunity for us to serve. The service of bearing each other's burdens, the service of walking through each other's stuff, even when it's chronic, even when it's hard, even when it's uncertain. The service of guarding the reputation of others, of hearing gossip and dismissing it, of protecting others in speech. The service of common courtesy and decency. This is not underrated. The service of saying hello and thank you and treating people with human dignity. The service of hospitality. The service of opening up your home, of inviting people in, of offering people love and warmth. The service of listening. The service of not trying to fix anything, but sitting there and listening to people unjudgmentally and openly. And the last, the last is where I want to pause. The last is the service of being served. I actually think in this community, we're pretty good at serving, at least among our family and friends. We're pretty good at sending the flowers or offering to cook a meal or forming a meal train. We're pretty good at that type of service. We want to be there for people. And I've seen this community serve each other in extraordinary ways. But what I think we have to work on as a community is the service of being served. I often tell my mom when she's hesitating whether to ask for help, that when she does, she is offering others an opportunity to serve her. And it's true that when you ask for help, when you allow yourself to be vulnerable and express a need in community, you are helping others. You are serving others by allowing them to step in and step up for allowing them to give love to you. Maybe love that's been pent up, maybe love that needs to be expressed. The service of being served is underestimated. But I imagine it is that service that we as a people, as a church, as a community need to step into the most. And before we close, I wanna draw our attention to one last thing because service in itself is wonderful and changes you and makes you more humble, but it's even more important that it's done alongside a second practice called community. You see, the first half of the book of John is almost all public ministry. He's speaking and talking to people out in crowds. 
And then John takes this twist, like this turn in the middle of the book, where it zones in to this table with 12 disciples. How interesting is it that Jesus doesn't wash the feet of everyone? He washes the feet of his friends. I think what Jesus is trying to teach us in that moment is that service, service has to be done alongside community. Service is the attitude, is the way we are supposed to act in community. It's what builds community. It's what keeps communities together. It's what makes us resilient and strong. Staying humble, nurturing that fruit of humility is what enables us to stay together in true relationship. As we wrap up the series on essentialism, as we think about these practices that we've talked about, I hope that in the weeks ahead, you can start to think about what service might look like in your own life. What the daily discipline of looking for opportunity, of stepping up to that opportunity might look like for you. And I guarantee that when you start to open your eyes to where you can serve, the opportunities are endless. And you will change. Your heart will change. So that your order, your order of loves, will be correct. And when it is, when you love God, and then love others, and then love yourself, you're able to serve the kingdom better. Let us pray. Lord, you taught us how to be servants. You taught us how to live this life in service to something greater with the confidence and the trust that by doing this, we're able to stay focused on what matters. We're able to stay focused on the lens that you gave us to view this world in. Thank you for giving us the hands to work the hearts and the minds to do menial tasks. Lord, let this week be a week full of opportunity, full of opportunity to serve, full of opportunity to step up to the plate, and maybe, just maybe, the opportunity to be served and take that as our act of service. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Dallas area, we would love for you to visit us. For directions, service times, and more info, visit us at grove.org.